0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the letter of Paul to the Church of Rome, Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Lord's Day 46. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us, at the very beginning of our prayer, that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ, and will much less deny us what we ask of Him in faith, than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added, who art in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, you may remember from the Gospels that at a certain point in his ministry, the disciples came to the Lord Jesus with a request, and they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, when you think of it, that's a rather simple request, not difficult. We all understand exactly what it means, at least we think we do. But at the same time, it's also a rather odd request, if you really think about it a little longer. In the first place, it's not something difficult when the disciples ask the Lord Jesus to teach them how to pray, Obviously, we understand that. We can almost predict what the Lord Jesus is going to say in a manner of speaking. But at the same time, as I mentioned, it's also very odd. After all, these disciples are all Jews. They've all been raised in Jewish homes with Jewish parents. They've all been taught, most likely, at one of the local schools, because even in those days, yes, there were schools. They've probably also been taught by the priests and the rabbis. They've gone to the temple and the tabernacle. Maybe the synagogue as well. So why in the world would they be asking the Lord Jesus to teach them how to pray? They already know how to pray. Jews surely know how to pray. They learned that already way back in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, you can say in a manner of speaking that that every one of the psalms that we sing today is also a prayer. And they were constantly saying and singing and repeating these things, so they all knew how to pray. So what's going on here? Why are they going to the Lord Jesus with this kind of a request? Well, you need to understand that really there is more to this particular question than meets the eye. There is the fact that in the days of the Lord Jesus, there were what were called schools of the disciples. A lot of rabbis were crisscrossing the Holy Land, so to speak, and a lot of these rabbis would have followers, and, and each one of these rabbis would have some new teaching, some new thing to impart to their students. Some new way of connecting with God or trying to understand the will of God. And so the idea was that you linked up with one of these rabbis and you gained further insight. And that's not what these disciples are doing. They've linked up with the Lord Jesus Christ and and now they, they want to know his particular perspective on the matter of prayer. You'll also notice in this connection that in Luke chapter 11, there's this strange comment, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, we don't know everything that John taught his disciples, but obviously John, too, must have been teaching his disciples to to pray in a, in a certain way, and it wasn't with thee and thou either was much more involved than that. So here are these disciples of the Lord Jesus. They see John's disciples being taught about prayer in a certain way. And, and, and they're not getting the same thing from the Lord Jesus. So they come to the Lord Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't want to take a back seat to the disciples of John the Baptist, nor do we want to take a backseat to any other roving rabbi in Israel. We want to know what you think about these matters. Well, it's in response to that that we get what is called the Lord's Prayer. That most famous of all prayers. And you know the Lord's Prayer, you all have memorized it, you can all recite it at least most of you, if you're not too old or too young. But you also know it's very simple in a sense. There's not a lot of words in the Lord's Prayer. But it's also very deep. And and, then that's Simplicity and that depth begins in a way already in the very opening line of the Lord's Prayer because you'll notice one of the first things that the Lord Jesus talks about when he teaches his disciples to pray is how to address God. You don't just jump into prayer. You don't just start... Asking or saying things without, first of all, setting the context, if you will. So the Lord Jesus tells his disciples, when you pray, you should begin this way. Our Father in heaven. Now, of course, that's not to say that that's the only way to begin your prayer, but notice you first begin with an address to the Almighty. And I think the Lord Jesus is saying that the best way really to address the Almighty God of heaven and earth as a believer in the context of the New Testament is to call Him Father, our Father, and the Father who dwells in all of his power and glory in the heavens. So this afternoon, I'd like to preach to you on the following theme, the incomparable blessing of being able to address God as Father. And in this blessing, we are reminded of our adopting Father, our redeeming Savior, and our transforming spirit. Well, beloved, first of all, we begin with what I call the great blessing. What's the blessing and what's so great about it? Well, I think we need to first of all look, for example, at the bigger picture. And what is the bigger picture? Well, it goes all the way back to the very beginning of time. You, you all know that no sooner had the Lord God created man and woman... And that a very special, intimate bond emerged between the Creator and these special creatures of His. Adam and Eve could relate to God because of how He had made them. They knew that they were special in His sight, that they had been given a very unique place and task in His wonderful creation. And yet, not only had Adam and Eve, you might say, been made special by God, but they also had entered into a special relationship with him. You know, Genesis tells us that the Lord God used to walk in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. What was he doing? I suspect he was inspecting what he had made, enjoying what he had just made, looking at all the wonders of his handiwork, but not only that, for as he was walking in the cool of the garden in, in the nighttime, he would also commune with man. Adam and Eve enjoyed real fellowship with God. We can only imagine what that was like. God and man, the creator and the creatures, the father and his children would get together in the evening and they would enjoy and relish each other's company to the fullest. That's how it was in the beginning. But of course you know that's not how it remained. At a certain point the children decided to rebel against the father. They decided that, well, the fellowship was great, but they no longer wanted to be creatures who had to do his bidding. Adam and Eve were not content simply to live out God's will in their lives. They wanted to go their own way. They had their own plans, their own ambitions, their own designs. They wanted a life of autonomy. And even they wanted to exercise divine authority and power themselves. See, these creatures, they no longer wanted to remain as creatures. They would much rather be gods. However, in spite of their great desires, you and I know it didn't turn out that way. No sooner had the so-called dastardly deed been done, no sooner had they eaten of the tree and they realized that instead of living a life of glorious promotion, it was a life of inglorious demotion. That instead of being graduated to godlike status, they ended up as broken human beings. That instead of... Claiming ownership of the garden, they got evicted. And that instead of being friends and children of God, they became enemies and rebellious offspring. And you know, that hurt. We can't begin to imagine how much that hurt them and how much it hurt God. You can read a little bit about that, of course, in Genesis chapter three, how, how instantly overnight everything becomes a huge struggle, where before there had been harmony and peace and tranquility. There's now nothing but conflict and contention and hurt. Man also all of a sudden finds himself struggling with himself. He finds himself struggling with his wife. He finds himself struggling with, with all of nature around him and under him. And above all, he finds himself struggling with his God and maker. And God's good creation lies in ruins. And his image, as and likenesses, are nothing more than distortions and perversions of what they had originally been mean, been made like. You can say, beloved, that as a result of the fall of the sin, everything becomes instantly dysfunctional. And I think we know something about that word today, don't we? In our day and age, there's all kinds of talk about dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional marriages, dysfunctional families. Husbands and wives turn their marriages into arenas of conflict and bickering. Parents and children turn their homes into forums where nasty power struggles take place and raised voices are heard. And co-workers and fellow workers turn their world of work into places of gossip and slander, conflict and contention. And the result is one of estrangement. Because people can no longer get along with one another, they avoid one another. They put as much distance as they can and as many barriers as they can between one another. They turn their backs on one another. Oh beloved, has that also happened? Is that also what happened between God and man? After what happened in the Garden of Eden, did God wipe his hand of his creation and of his creatures? Did he suddenly retire to heaven or did he decide to try over again on some other planet? Well you'll notice what the gospel says or what the word of God says that God continued. He continued to interact with our world even though it was broken and shattered. And he did it out of love. You know, you see that almost immediately. He sets apart, for example, the line of Seth of which Scripture says that in those days men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And he deals with the line of Noah. He deals with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He he chooses for himself a, a special people called Israel. A people that really are, are nothing. Nothing to look at, nothing to talk about. No achievements. They don't have a great culture. They don't have a huge reputation. They don't have all kinds of power and wealth. They're nothing. But yet he embraces them. He creates them. He frees them, and he plants them in a new land. As a all of that, you could say the miracle of God's grace is apparent. Or instead of God rejecting all of mankind and saying that's it, he makes a new beginning. And he makes it especially by calling, electing, and embracing a new people. He becomes a father all over again. You know, in the beginning, God is, and God, of course, remains the natural father of, of all of us, of every human being on the face of the planet. But, of course, you can say that that fatherhood is a special fatherhood, certainly before the fall with Adam and Eve. And after the father, it becomes a special fatherhood with the likes of Noah and company. And of course, in turn, it becomes a special fatherhood with respect to Israel. You read those words in Hosea 11. When I, Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. In other words, the creating God already in the Old Testament, also shows himself to be the Adopting God and Father, who embraces people even in sin, and who makes them his covenant people. Yes, and the Lord Jesus in his day makes it clear that this is still the case. Lord Jesus talks about when you... Address God, you call him Father. You know, when the Lord Jesus says you call him Father, he doesn't mean just Father in a generational, creative sense only, in a kind of objective manner, as if God is the great mechanic or the great engineer. No, in that word Father that's used by the Lord Jesus, there is all kinds of love and compassion and understanding and patience and mercy. The Catechism speaks about the fact that this is the Father in heaven, which means His heavenly majesty. But of course that heavenly majesty shows itself also upon the earth in His dealings with His people. And in His dealings with His people we see that God is no longer at longer hence. that man begins to enjoy a state of fellowship with God. And not only does God have fellowship with man, and man have fellowship with God, but there's also, the Lord Jesus says, the great possibility of boldness and confidence when we pray. You can come to this Father with all your needs, all your hurts, all your questions. There are no dumb questions when it comes to God, there are no too simple questions or unnecessary questions. You know, sometimes we, we think that, don't we? We, we, we kind of look at our life and, and sometimes we, we kind of divide it into two compartments and in the one compartment we, we, we say there's all the big issues, the kind of issues we can bring to God. And then, in another compartment, we have all the little issues. And we say, ah, we're not going to bother God with the little issues. I don't think our God's pleased with that kind of dualism. I think He wants to hear about the big issues in our life. He wants to hear about the little issues in our life. He's a father. Can you imagine an earthly father who who says to his children, I only want you to tell me about the headlines of your life. Don't bother about the fine print. Well, that's not what earthly fathers do, and that's certainly not what heavenly fathers do. Our heavenly Father wants to know everything in our life that burdens us, bothers us, that pulls us down that discourages us that hurts us nothing nothing excluded you can bring it all to him if you're sick bring it to the father if you're troubled, bring it to the father if you're lonely, bring it to the father if you're struggling with your work bring it to the father If you don't know what to do with that relationship you're in, bring it to the Father. If you're dying, bring it to the Father. Everything. You see, when the Lord Jesus says, you pray, our Father who art in heaven, he means that you're no longer allowed to carry your burdens alone. There's no room for pride here. There's no room for selectivity. Don't even try to go it alone. Take them all to God as your father. Because this father has adopted you. You're the recipient of his great work of adoption. You know, there was a time in the history of our churches and of other churches where there was a huge debate about baptism related to adopted children. And there were some people who were saying, well, no, we really shouldn't baptize adopted children. Those children should actually mature and in due time make their profession of faith and then they can be baptized. So natural children get adopted Or natural children get baptized, adopted children have to wait. Now we can debate the theology of all that, but you know one thing is very clear with all that and that is the fact that we are all adopted children of God. The Father has only one natural son, Jesus Christ. For the rest we're all adopted. And we need to recognize that. And we need to rejoice in that. And be perfectly odd. by it as well. How is it possible that God would want to adopt the likes of me? Of course, at this point, you might wonder, well, you know, well, it's fine, but how does all of this fit together? After all... God makes man good, man rebels against God, and yet God still keeps on going with mankind. Isn't there something inconsistent about that? Well, there is. There's something hugely inconsistent about that. And if you were to say, well, what is going on here? Is God not trading his justice for his mercy or the vice versa? I would say, yes, in a sense, that's true. Of course, you also need to reckon with one more thing, and that's not only the adopting nature of God the Father, but also the redeeming work of God the Son. Why is it that after the fall, God picks it up again, this matter of salvation? Why is it that He he relates to the line of Seth and to people like Noah? Why is it that He makes a covenant with, with Abraham? And why is it that He goes around with Israel for years and with centuries, often filled with frustration and conflict. How's that all possible? Thought man had ruined it all. Oh, beloved, it's only possible because of Jesus Christ. It's only possible because He promised the coming of His Son. And it's only possible because in Jesus Christ... All of those inconsistencies have been straightened out. But when Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time, what did He do? He took upon Himself all of our sins, the sins of God's entire people. And He paid for those sins. He broke down all the barriers. He brought us right back into the throne room of God's presence. You know, there's a wonderful illustration of that in the the book of Hebrews. It tells us that there's quite a difference between, in some ways, Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. You know, Old Testament worship is is very beautiful, very intricate. Lots of laws and sub-laws. Lots of ceremonies, lots of pomp and circumstance and color, but also lots of barriers. And you would meet those barriers when, for example, you went to the tabernacle or temple, because you could only go so far. You could go only so far, you're a foreigner. If you're a woman, you could go a little further, but then no further. If you were a man, you could go a little further yet, but no further. If you were a priest, you could go further yet, but no further. And if you were a high priest, well, you know, once a year on the great day of atonement, you could get into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God himself. Once a year. And for the rest... Sorry, no trespassing. You can't go there. It's too close to the majesty and the holiness of God. That's the Old Testament. That's that teaching dispensation when the people of God need to know that this God of theirs is not someone they can bring down to their level, put in their box, Use for their own crooked devices, but that this God is holy. And that his people need to be filled with awe and respect. When they think of him and talk to him and worship him. You see, the Old Testament is a teaching, molding, shaping dispensation. But then in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ comes. And you know, when Jesus Christ, our Lord, comes, everything changes. You read about that, Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, it's a conclusion. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You hear that? The high priest had confidence to enter the Holy of Holies because he carried the blood of bulls and goats. We go into the presence of God, carrying the blood, as it were, of Jesus. And notice, by a new and living way, open to us through the curtain that is his body. That's where we reminded of this morning in the celebration of the Lord's Supper his broken body, his shed blood. And since we have, the writer says, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, we have a much better priest than any High priest in the Old Testament. Sorry, Aaron, but compared to Christ, you don't cut it. You really don't. And nor does any other high priest in the Old Testament compare to Jesus Christ. Because of Him. You can draw near to God. Every day. No restrictions. No limitations. An open door of access. We can really call him Father, and we can call him Father because Jesus Christ gives us and is at the bottom of this great new confidence that we experience. You know, it's no wonder in the Old Testament they didn't call God Father too often. It's it's hard. On the basis of the blood of bulls and goats, to call God Father, it feels like a lot of presumption. But you know, if you can go to God, clothed as it were with the blood of His very own Son, that is huge confidence. That's what the Lord Jesus is teaching. You go to my Father, you lay all your burdens before Him, and if you have any doubts about being able to do that, or perhaps you think you're trespassing, or maybe you think you're out of your place, remember, I'm the one who's telling you to do this and to say this. To enjoy these blessings. Because of me, you can confidently go to God and say, My Father. You see, He is the pioneer and the perfector of our faith. But yet there's also something else. And that is, not only is he the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, but there's also one more gift that we need to consider, and that is, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit in all of this. You know, what, what place does the Holy Spirit play in our prayers? Why, well, what place does he have in, in this whole matter of being able to address God as, as Father? Well, you know, it's true. We have the blood of Christ and the command of Christ to fall back on. Even though we have that, though, we do mess up, don't we? We know that so often this praying of ours needs a lot of help. We don't always know what to pray for. We don't always know exactly how to prioritize things. We we often lack insight into our own needs. Sometimes we, you know, we we do sometimes address the silliest prayers to God. We need help when it comes to praying. You know, the Lord Jesus knew that. That's why He said, you know, you're not going to... Only have one counselor when you pray to my Father to help you. I'm also going to give you another counselor. the Holy Spirit. I've got to go away. I have to go to heaven. I'm going to sit on the throne. And it's true, my majesty and my spirit will still be in your midst, but I'm also going to make sure that my spirit is in your midst and working in your hearts and in your lives. And the spirit in turn will teach you. He'll teach you even better how to pray. And when you don't know what to say, don't worry. The Spirit will say it for you. You know, sometimes we don't know what to pray for. There are those times in our life when words just don't do it. I'm sure you've, many of you have, have experienced that. You, you really can't somehow put your feelings totally into words because none of the words seem to fit or want to come out and you get frustrated. Well, don't be frustrated. Paul says the Spirit will help us. He'll give the words. He'll communicate to the Father what really lives in our hearts and disturbs our souls. So, beloved, what a what a blessing it is to be able to, to go to God every day. What a gift it is to be able to call Him our Father. And don't let go of that treasure. Make use of it every day. You need it. I need it. We all need it. In all of life's circumstances. We need to anchor our faith in the triune God, in the adopting Father, the redeeming Son, and the transforming Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.